So where I work for my full-time job during the week, I'm the fleet manager for the university that I work at. And sometimes I go through seasons where my job is a lot of the same thing over and over and over again, you know, looking over vehicles, making sure they're clean, making sure, uh, you know, their oil change is good. If, it's, if it needs an oil change, doing the oil change. Uh, and so there's, there's sometimes it feels like weeks go on where I have a lot of the same repetitious, you know, uh, all the inspections are due in the summer. So in the summer, it's, it kind of gets monotonous of just, you know, uh, 20 vehicles that I have to just cycle through and get all of them inspected. And then there's other times where I get uh, new tasks or uh, interesting tasks from my boss. And ones that I particularly enjoy are if I have to buy a new piece of equipment and research it and find the best deal and, and all everything that goes into that. It usually takes uh, several months to figure out what's the brand of equipment that we want, what's the model within that brand, uh, what's what best suits our needs, and then where can I find the best deal for that for the university. And then the other is when I have to sell something for the, for the university, uh, <laughs> it just, uh, you know, putting it out there and finding somebody who's willing to buy it and then going through the process of getting permission to sell on behalf of the university. I don't know, I just enjoy those kind of tasks. And it's outside of my regular wheelhouse. It's more, uh, it feels more higher level. So I, <laughs> I enjoy those tasks more than what would be, you know, the, the typical day in and day out, or the things that I just feel too comfortable, or not, maybe not too comfortable, but comfortable with. I like the challenge of doing something new and learning a new task, and it makes me feel like I'm really contributing to the university. I'm really helping them to, to move forward. When I inherited the position, there were some vehicles that were really beat up and really in need of just being phased out of the fleet. Uh, they were breaking down regularly, if you could even get them to start <laughs> regularly. Um, and so it's now when I look out at the fleet and I see a, a good number of really reliable vehicles that I have faith, they're not going to break down. It really makes me feel like I've contributed a lot to the team. And, um, and then when my, when my boss comes back and we meet and he gives me the attaboy because I did a good job, that means a lot to me. And uh, I say all that because we have a really unique role and a re really unique job that we get to do for the Lord, that we get to participate in for the Lord. And did you, this may shock you, but it's true and we'll get to it. So brace yourselves. This could be shocking for you to hear. Did you know that you sitting here in this pew, each of you, each of us, are greater than the greatest prophet who ever lived. Did you know that? And that might especially come as a shock in an evangelical church where we believe in total depravity and we believe in sin and we know that Romans 3 says there is none good, no, not one. And if there's none good, then there's definitely none that are great. So there's no way that I'm greater than the greatest prophet who ever lived. But it's true. If you trust in Jesus... If you are a believer in Jesus, you are greater than the greatest prophet who ever lived. That does come with a bit of caveat, of a caveat. We have to define the word great, and we're going to get into that through the course of this text. But that, that greatness that the Lord has bestowed upon us is the revelation of who Jesus is. And knowing what no other prophet, specifically who we're, who we're going to look at tonight, 
uh, and talking about John the Baptist and his experience of Jesus, knowing more revelation, knowing more of the hosts of Scripture, knowing more of what God's plan is, knowing the, the full uh, laid, laid bare gospel. The, the prophets of old, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all looked forward to, and they kind of had a hazy picture of what would happen. We can see clearly through what's been revealed to us in scripture. So there's a couple of terms that we're going to be looking at tonight and uh, utilizing, and it's important that we understand what those are. Um, one of them is prophet. What is a prophet? I think usually when we think of a prophet, specifically in the, in the Old Testament, uh, we think of somebody who can see the future. And they can, you know, they can look in, they can see what's going to happen eventually, and so they predict the future. And we usually closely associate the idea of predicting the future with prophecy. And to be fair, there were many times that prophets did predict the future. But more than anything, prophets declare God's judgment. They, they tell God's people God's judgment, usually in response to the fact that God's people are sinning and they need to change the fact that they're sinning or there's going to be bad consequences for them. There's going to be negative consequences for them. So the prophets that were sent to Israel were usually, usually saying, look, you guys are intermarrying with people that you're not supposed to intermarry with. You're, you're worshiping their idols instead of worshiping the one true God. You are not living according to the law. You're not obeying God anymore. Turn back. Turn back. Because in Deuteronomy, Moses told us what's going to happen if we don't stay faithful to the Lord, if we don't keep the commands. And then what happens? Well, both, all the tribes of Israel ultimately are taken into captivity. And that's what we see when Jesus comes onto the scene as, as a captive Israel under the Roman Empire. And it was because they didn't heed the prophets. They didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't turn back. So those prophets, especially in including John the Baptist, as we're going to look at, was declaring God's judgment. And one really, really important word, since we're going to be talking about John the Baptist, is the word repent. We need to know what the word repent means. We see it a lot in Scripture, but is it, is it defined? It's usually closely associated with the idea of confessing our sin, but it goes a little bit deeper than that. The idea really is to turn from our sin, to make a 180 turn, to turn from our sin and to turn back to God. And it's saying and believing about our sin what God says and believes about our sin, agreeing with God about our sin, that our sin is destructive, that it will destroy our lives, that it will destroy our relationship with God, that in the first place it separates us from God and destines us for death and judgment. That's what our sin does. And so when we repent, we, we recognize, we say, yes, my sin is destructive and I'm turning from it. And I'm turning back to God. It doesn't mean that we're never going to struggle with sin anymore, but we're not looking to sin to be the ultimate thing that satisfies us and defines us. We are now defined by Jesus, and we are looking to him to be our satisfaction. And when we do stray back and we start to struggle with sin, we repent and we confess that sin and we turn back to Jesus. So we're, we've been looking at interesting conversations that Jesus has 
throughout the Gospels. Tonight we're looking at a conversation that Jesus has indirectly with John the Baptist. Um, and then to some other folks who are there who overhear this conversation. John sends some of his followers to ask Jesus a question, and then Jesus responds to that question, and then it expounds on it, and then based on what, how he expounds on it to the crowd that's listening, they have a, a response to that. Some of them respond one way, some of them respond another way, and then he... Uh, responds to the ones who respond negatively. So there's there's kind of five parts to this. It's John the Baptist's question, Jesus' response to him, his expounding on that response, and then the response of the people who are listening, and then Jesus' response to their response. Um, we're going to get into all that in just a minute. John the Baptist and Jesus biologically were cousins, um, so they were uh, decently close relatives. They were very close in age, just a few months apart. And basically that's the end of the similarities between the kind of people that Jesus and John the Baptist were. John never drank alcohol. Never once in his life. Jesus miraculously created alcohol and occasionally, obviously never getting drunk, but Jesus did drink alcohol. John wouldn't, wouldn't even eat the same kind of food that normal people ate, that regular people ate. He's talked about his eating locusts and honey. Jesus would frequently attend dinners at people's houses and eat with the tax collectors and sinners and associate with all manner of people. John lived in isolation out in the desert and waited for people to come to him to hear his message. Jesus traveled around to towns and cities to go to the where the people were and deliver the message to them. Jesus or John called people to repent and be cleansed, which was pictured in the baptism that he did. He would baptize people in the in the Jordan River, but he would call them to repent, and after they repented, he would uh, they would be cleansed, not through baptism. That was a an object lesson to show that. God recognized their repentance. But Jesus would cleanse people and then call them to repentance. He would do a miracle. He would clean somebody from some infirmity. He would uh, um, exercise a demon. He would cure some disease. And then he would say, go and sin no more. And so how they did things was somewhat different. John had an integral role, though, and ultimately their message was the same message. Their message was repent and turn back to God. They both had that essential message. But because of some of these differences, John was questioning Jesus' methods and ultimately who Jesus was. And that's the question that starts off the passage that we're looking at tonight. So if you're not there already, please turn to Luke Chapter 7, starting in verse 18, and we'll be going through 35. It is page 730. Luke 7, 18 through 35. John's disciples told him, him being John, about all these things. Calling two of them, he, said, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to, at, to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases 
sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for uh, just the question that John asks and Jesus' response to it. May we glean a better understanding of who you are and your purpose for us through it. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. So we start off and we have this hard question that John asks. And it's, John is in prison right now. So that's an integral part of this story. John's not out in the desert anymore. He's not free to go and talk to Jesus himself. John is in prison, but his disciples have access to him. And up until this point, up until he was in prison, he was doing what Jesus says was his job, to prepare the way for Jesus, and he was calling the people to repent, telling them that the Lord was coming, and fulfilling that role. And uh, up at this point, he has already he's already acknowledged that in order for God's purposes to be manifested, he needs to fade away, and Jesus needs to come to the forefront. And that's uh, the beauty of John three thirty, where um, John's disciples are like, John, Jesus is. He's like getting more famous than you, and he's, his disciples are baptizing more people than us. And John's response is, he must become greater, I must become less. So John has already had that humble response to the growth of Jesus' ministry. But now he's receiving reports from his disciples, and they're coming back and they're saying, he's hanging out with Gentiles. He, he healed a, a centurion's son, and he's complimenting the faith of Gentiles, and he's hanging out with sinners. And you have to understand, John, John's message wasn't an easy one to hear. John's message was, look, for hundreds of years, we've been 
we've got it wrong. We're sinning. We're transgressing against God. God is offended because of our sin. Turn back. It would, nobody would have went to John to, for a, a, a great pick-me-up. He was the kind of person who would really make you question your motives and your decisions in this life. He, he was the kind of person who would really make you see the areas of your life that needed to change and be transformed by God. And so there was a sting to that. There was a bit of a hammer to that. And then he sees Jesus, who's hanging out with sinners and, and kind of taking what he would probably see as a softer approach. And he's, he's telling people, your sins are forgiven. And you can kind of see how that would be somewhat hard for John to hear. Someone who, who didn't even participate in, in drinking alcohol and didn't even eat the same kind of food that sinful people ate. Not that John was a self-righteous person, but he, he lived a life set apart from the world's way of doing things. And so when Jesus comes and he's right there in the thick of it, getting his hands dirty, rolling up his sleeves, he has questions that, that, that Jesus is, is bringing a message of mercy and grace. And he's not just straightening everything out. Because even John was susceptible to wanting Jesus to, to be that political leader who would straighten out Israel, who, who would rule from the throne of David. And so he's, he's questioning, and he's, ultimately the question is, are you really the Messiah? I, I mean, I know that I, that I saw the Holy Spirit descend on you. I know that I heard the voice of God from heaven say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, but I'm just doubting. Good thing we don't ever struggle with doubting who God is and if Jesus is who he said he is. No, we do. We struggle. John was struggling with doubt, and that's okay. The problem is that he wanted Jesus to be the bang to his pop-pop. You know, he was like, I went in for the jab, and I want you to get the right hook, Jesus, and you're not, you're not doing that. You're, you're, Jesus came with kindness and with love. And there were times where he definitely set the record straight, and he, he called people out for their sins. But Jesus came to call sinners to repentance to manifest the kindness of God. And John, through his harder message, had prepared the people, as we see in this passage, to hear about God's goodness and God's kindness. But John was struggling to see that at this point. He was struggling to see the characteristics about Jesus that really made him the Messiah. I really struggle with doubt, so this really resonates with me. And I mean, I struggle with all kinds of doubt. And it's just been a constant thing in my life, and I'm just realizing that it's like a, a third limb on my body, and I'm probably going to deal with it till the day I die. And I, I struggle with doubting whether God exists. I struggle with doubting whether Jesus was God. I struggle with doubting if I'm going to be good enough to actually be a Christian. I struggle with doubting my salvation. I, I struggle with that all the time. So when I see John here, and I see Jesus' response to John, and Jesus isn't like, oh, scrap the John project, can't use him anymore. I see hope, because that's not how Jesus responds to John at all. Jesus responds graciously. The problem is, we, we, we ask this question in our minds, but we never actually man, like, ask it out loud 
to God. We never pray to God, God, are you really who you say you are? Last week I brought up the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I found it really interesting that there's a point where Nabil Qureshi is, through his autobiography, he's talking about his struggle with, is God Allah or is he Jesus? And he just, he was praying and he's just asking God that. He was struggling at that point. He didn't know what the truth was and God made it clear to him. He honored that prayer, but he, he, he just broke in before God saying, are you are you Allah? Are you the, the God that the Quran talks about? Or are you Jesus? Are, are you God who became flesh? And he just struggles with that. I dare, I double dare, if you're struggling with doubt, for you to ask God this. To ask God, are you really the Messiah? To ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Or should I be looking somewhere else? Because I believe that... 100% of the time, the Lord honors that prayer. The Lord honors us asking these questions. And the other thing is, God can and does still use us even if we doubt. God still had purpose a purpose for John the Baptist. God still used him. And Jesus even still compliments him and says really lofty things about him. So even when, sometimes we treat Doubt as though it's the sin that can just unhinge our, our faith. You know, it's just the one string you, pop, you pull out and it unravels our whole faith. If we're struggling with doubt, God still can use us. God still can empower us to, to do his will and his work. So that's John's hard question. And then... Jesus has the good response to that question. And he, he basically puts it back on John. And he's like, John, what's the rational conclusion? Says to his disciples, go back and just tell John what you've seen and heard. You've seen all of these miracles. You've seen all of these signs. You've seen the message that I'm preaching. John, look at all this and you decide for yourself if I'm the Messiah. Based on that, he basically is saying, look at my life and my message and see if it lines up with who you know the Messiah is to be. Look at my life and decide for yourself. He, he puts it back on John. What's interesting about this and what's important for us to realize is Jesus does not ask us to accept him blindly. That's a, a huge criticism that people make about the Christian faith. They say, oh, I, I, I just can't buy into blind faith. There's nothing blind about the kind of faith that we have in Jesus. Jesus came as a historical figure. You know, even outside of the scriptures, we can trace the whole historicity of our Bible and how it came into being and how it is a, a true historical document. God, God left the, the biggest paper trail if he wanted us, like if, if his goal was blind faith, he really didn't do a good job of instituting the blind part of that because he gave us all manner of history and evidence within scripture, scripture verifying scripture, no contradiction between the authors of the, of the whole Bible. And um, he really kept his story straight through the whole Old Testament and into the New Testament, that there was going to be one person who would come and deliver mankind from sin. 
It's just, it's there. Every single book of the Bible, it's just there. The Mankind is completely paralyzed and dead under the weight of their own sin. And only the Lord can deliver. And that he will do that by coming physically. That he will do that by coming and suffering. And that he will provide a way for people to have eternal life. Jesus does not ask us to accept him blindly. And he also doesn't take our will away from us. He didn't say, John, just do this because I'm Jesus and I said so. He says, look, think about it rationally. Think about it logically. Look at all the evidence. You piece it together and you see what makes the most sense. And Jesus doesn't frown upon intellectualism. You know, sometimes in our culture, we can think that, you know, if having a deep appreciation for theology or a, a, just a, a deep desire to study is, is somehow a waste of time. That's, that's not the kind of thought process that we see here. We see Jesus advocating for us to use the faculties of our mind to think rationally. God did give us emotions for a purpose. We, sh- we shouldn't shut down our emotions. But our emotions, like, do- like John struggling with doubt here, should not control our intellect. We, sh- we should be able to think rationally. You know, a lot of times w- when we struggle with worry, it's because we've, we've kind of like shut off the intellectual part, the thinking part of our brain, and we've just kind of let our emotions take us in crazy directions, and we're not reining them back in. We should, we should value intellect. We should value rational thinking, logical thinking. We should value education. In fact, Jesus invites us to think rationally and intellectually about all of the evidence and come to the right conclusion. God's not intimidated by what we'll find if we do geological digs and if we, you know, study science and if we do, you know, do all these, if we read philosophical books. God's not intimidated by Kant or Nietzsche or anybody who argues against who the Lord is. God's like, I created everything. It all points back to me. So, so yeah, the, the problem is that often we, uh, we as people have this, you know, we have our presuppositions that we, and we, we want to rebel against God and we want to prove that God doesn't exist. So we make all the evidence say that God doesn't exist or we make all the evidence say that Jesus wasn't who he really said he was. Or we make all the evidence say that the Bible isn't really a historical book. But that's all us twisting the arm of history and philosophy and logic and rationale to say something that it doesn't say. God's not intimidated by the people who say that he's not real. He's going to prove himself to be very real one day and already has. It's not like, again, it's not just wishful thinking. And then Jesus gives high praise. There is none greater than John the Baptist. 
What's important to realize here, John is the final Old Testament prophet. And that seems weird to us because what's recorded about him is in the New Testament. But by the time that John dies, when he's executed for not compromising on his convictions, by the time John dies, no book of the New Testament has been written. He's living under the same conditions that all of the Old Testament prophets lived under. He's living under Roman exile. He's, his ministry is by and large before Jesus' ministry begins. And he has a very similar message to the people that the Old Testament prophets have. So he's the final Old Testament prophet. But the reason why he's greater than anyone up until that point is he had more revealed to him by God than anyone else. He had more revealed to him than Moses did. He had more revealed to him than Ezekiel did, than Isaiah did, than Elijah did. He had, so he, he knew that his ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. He knew that next on the scene was the Messiah. So he had a very unique role in preparing the people to hear God's message. And so Jesus, his, what he includes here, he adds that the least of those in the kingdom of God are greater than John the Baptist is. Well, what does he mean by that? Again, he means that we have even more revelation than John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was, was killed, was beheaded, before Jesus went to the cross, before Jesus rose again, before the... the the host of the rest of the New Testament was written. And so what he's saying is when you believe in, in my message, so those who believed in John's message were prepared to hear Jesus' message, and Jesus expounded on it further. He revealed the kindness of God deeper, and he revealed things that, that John didn't even grasp to the believers. And so those who would believe those who would become citizens of the kingdom of God by trusting in Jesus' message had a more full message. And in that way, they were greater. We have a deeper knowledge of God's plan and God's intention for the world. You know, John the Baptist didn't have any inkling about the church or, you know, or a, a faith that would go to all people groups and that wouldn't just be limited to the nation of Israel. So in that way, we are greater than he is. But with that, that, that's not meant to be something that we get to brag about. Like, oh, I'm greater than John the Baptist. Hi, I'm greater than John the Baptist. It's nice to meet you. I'm greater than John the Baptist. You know how great he was? He was the greatest person ever born, but I'm greater than he is. That's not the intention of what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is very similar to Uncle Ben's advice to Peter in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And I know that's a cliche, but usually cliches have some truth to them. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. He revealed himself more profoundly to us than to any of the prophets before us, Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist. We have a, a fuller picture they had the responsibility to declare, declare his message. 
The prophets of old, that was their vocation, declare his message. We have that responsibility all the more because he revealed more to us. The, the veil is torn. We, we don't need priests and kings to, to be in between us and God. We have one intercessor, one intercessor alone, Jesus Christ. And we can be a priest in and of ourselves. And we can pray for one another. And we don't have to go and sacrifice animals on the altar anymore because the sacrifice has been made. The debt has been paid by Jesus. And we can have a relationship directly with God. We have the whole host of Scripture. So yeah, we have greater revelation of God. We have a greater knowledge of God, and in that way we're greater. We have a much greater responsibility because of it. And so he, he tells the, the people this. So he, that after he answers John the Baptist's disciples, they go away, and he, he tells the people all this. You know, he tells them, you know, you, you went out and you, you heard a prophet. And more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet because he's a unique prophet who had the, the role of preparing people for the message of God. And as great as John the Baptist is, if you believe in my message and you become a citizen of my kingdom, you become a believer in me, you, you will have even greater things revealed to you. You will be even greater than him. So the people respond to this one of two ways. There's the people who went out and they heard John's message and they were baptized by John. They listened to John. They respond one way. And the religious leaders who refused and rejected John, they respond a different way. The ones who heard John's message say, God, wow, God's way is right. Wow, I can, I can see more clearly now. I understand more clearly. And they believe in what Jesus is saying. And those who rejected John also reject Jesus. So those who listened to John's message and responded to it, listened to Jesus' message. Those who never responded to John's message wouldn't respond to Jesus' message. They had too much pride to admit that they needed God. Notice it was the, even the tax collectors who responded positively to Jesus. They, were, they knew they were sinful. They were told all the time they were sinful. They were hated by people for being so sinful. So when Jesus gives them this good news that they could be even the least of us, even the most sinful of us, we could be great? That's the first time I ever heard that before. Yeah, sign me up. But those who are seeing their power slowly stripped away from them and people are following Jesus and listening to Jesus, and the religious leaders who used to have influence are having less and less influence, and they believe they're righteous, and they believe that Jesus is a blasphemer, they don't respond. They don't listen. They don't hear it. Have too much pride. I had a lot of pride when I first became a Christian, mostly because my brain was just like a vacuum and it just sucked in biblical knowledge, but not a lot of like heart penetration and not a lot of hand penetration. I wasn't really living it, but man, I could pass a test. I could do a lot of trivia. And I got, a, I got really puffed up in my pride of all my Bible knowledge. And a dear brother in Christ came to me and he confronted me with my pride, and he had a list of 
somewhere between 20 and 25 things that I had done that were very, very conceited, and I could have disputed one or two of them, but when somebody comes with a list of 20 to 25 things, you really can't argue too much on that, and it stung. Stung because he was someone that I really looked up to. He was the youth pastor at the, in the church that I was at at the time, and it hurt a lot to say it, but man, I felt loved. I knew that he really cared about me and really wanted to see the Lord work in my life. And I grew so much after that, mostly in humility. <laughs> that was the, the, the first thing. Uh, I stopped thinking of myself so much greater than other people. John's message stung when people heard it. He called them out for their sin and he wasn't shy about it. But if they were willing to repent, they could receive the, the gift that Jesus would ultimately bring, the blessing that Jesus would ultimately bring, namely an eternal, vibrant, abundant life. It's the same for us. If we're going to experience the blessings of Jesus, if we're going to experience that abundant life, that vibrant life, that eternal life that Jesus offers us, it starts with recognizing our need for him, our desperate state in our sinfulness. And, but unfortunately, the religious leaders didn't do that, and so Jesus has a hard criticism for them. And basically, it amounts to there's just no pleasing you. He calls that, he says, those Basically, what, he, what it amounts to here, he says, to, he's, he, he's thinking and he wants to compare them to something. He says, to what then can I compare the people of this generation, namely the religious leaders is who he's talking about at this point. What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. So those who rejected John and Jesus, they're like children who refuse to play the game with other children. They're just, they just sideline themselves and they're like, we don't want to play that game is the kind of idea of what he's comparing them to. And he says, basically he's saying, it's like John sang a sad song and nobody mourned for his sad song that he sang. They weren't pleased with his sad song that he sang. And then Jesus comes along and he sings a happy, upbeat song and they won't rejoice for the happy, upbeat song that Jesus sings for them. John came living one lifestyle. Jesus came living a completely different one. They both declared the same message and both were rejected. And effectively, that's what Jesus is saying. saying there's just no pleasing. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of done with trying to please you guys because there's people who are actually listening to the message and no matter what, what we do, no matter how we declare the truth to you, you're going to reject it. So picture a playground, and it's like John came along and got all the other kids on the playground. This is little John the Baptist. He's not, he's not 30-something John the Baptist. He's 3-something John the Baptist, somewhere in there. Um, he got everyone playing tag, but the future religious leaders are like, we don't want to play tag. And then Jesus comes along, and he's like, all right, guys, we're done playing tag now. We're going to play follow the leader. And the future religious leaders are like, we don't want to play follow the leader. And they're just, they're not willing to, to go along with the game that all the other kids are playing. 
Sometimes kids won't play tag or follow the leader, no matter how much fun it is. It's weird. Sometimes kids will, you'll just see them, like they'll get in a funk or a mood or something, and they'll literally just deprive themselves of fun. And they'll stomp their feet and they'll hang their head and they'll watch a bunch of other kids running around and playing, but they're offended and their pride's hurt and they don't want to join in on the game. Sometimes people won't listen to or accept the message of the gospel, no matter how bad they need it or how much better it would make their life. And just like kids who are playing a game on a playground and they're looking at the kid who's on the sidelines and saying, why won't you just, like we want to include you, but look how much fun we're having. Don't you want to have fun with us? Don't you want to play the game with us? There's going to be people that we declare the message of the gospel to and they're going to see how God is blessing you with joy and peace and hope and satisfaction in this life and contentment. And they're going to look at their own life and they're going to see that it's miserable and there's, there's rubble and they, no matter how much they know they need Jesus, they're just not going to turn to it. And our heart's going to break. And I, we should be broken for people. We should want people to hear the message of the gospel. But it's okay for us not to waste all of our energy there with rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection, declaring the message there, when there's other people who are willing to listen to and accept, who are willing to come along and play the game and be included. So recently I was talking to my boss, and he, uh, we talk about all sorts of stuff when we, when we get together. And one of the things we talk about is ministry. We talk about my involvement here in West Conshohocken and, and whatnot. And one of the challenges that he gave me was uh, from a book written by John Piper called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And, and, and the whole point there being that you don't need to be a certain type of person in order to do ministry. You don't need to have a certain set of qualifications or letters after your name in order to serve the Lord. You don't need to be young or old, seminary trained, or even have a college degree in order to share the gospel. You don't need years of experience. You don't need to be an eloquent speaker. We are all called and equipped by the Lord to tell people about Jesus, no matter what weakness or infirmities we have. So let's review. Just like John the Baptist, God does not mind if you question him. He does, however, challenge us to look at all the evidence and make a wise and educated decision. We have been given great revelation of who God is, but that comes with the responsibility to share that revelation far and wide, to tell people about Jesus. To experience the blessing of a thriving relationship with God, we must first deal with the sting of admitting our sin and repenting of it. And the Lord wants to include us in the most fulfilling calling that we could ever turn to, that we could ever answer. But we have to be willing to play by the rules. We have to be willing to obey him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come out here on Sunday nights. And thank you for the opportunity we had to look at this text tonight. Thank you for this 
conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist that we saw. God, thank you that you are patient with us even when we doubt, even when we worry, even when we fret. And God, thank you that you don't just leave us hanging, but that you have revealed yourself to us in so many ways, and that we can have so much confidence in the truth of your word. God, help us to answer the call that you give us to greatness, to share the gospel with as many people as we can, with whoever we can, however we can. God, help us not to get bound up and caught up in our pride so we won't confess our sins, so we won't repent, so we won't turn back to you. Help us to just get all that trash out of our lives, to confess it before you, to wholly trust it over to you, and to receive the blessings and the forgiveness that you give us. God, help us to live obediently to you, to listen to your voice, to listen to your word, to live lives that are patterned after the example that Jesus set for us. We thank you for it all. We thank you for the song we're about to sing. May we reflect on you and your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.